God's word, which is in scripture. And I, I, was, I asked my aunt Sandy, she was attending at the time, I said, Why? Is, that, is that something about the sermon? She said, no, we're, we're going through Matthew. As a church, they're going through Matthew. So every Sunday they read a chapter and they move on. I'm like, that's great because, okay, you miss a, you, you miss a Sunday. You know where they are. You come back and you fill it up. And by that time, if you're there for, I don't know how many chapters there are in the entire Bible, I'm sure there are years worth of reading. But, you know, that's how it went. Hello, George. Hi. How are you today? Good. Finer than the frogs there. That's pretty fine. That's pretty fine indeed. I can't see you putting your hair up in a ponytail, though, George. Hi, Lucas.
that might work out. And let me turn this off. That's what I'm using today. Okay.
Days of praise and acts and facts are here. Uh, baby bottles for the drive on the foyer table. And then also, is there something next to for the full ones? I, I was... There's a bin out there. A bin, okay. Ne next to the table, there's a place for the full ones. Um, camp um, will be at uh, Lael this year. Dates July 11 through 16, so that's fast approaching. Uh, registration documents uh, for campers are on the Facebook page. Church cookout today after church, and uh, no communion service today. We'll resume that on the 11th of July. All right, anything else I've forgotten or omitted? I know that Jared has some announcements. Do you want to do that now? Okay. First of all, thank you all for the prayers for uh, Pastor, my dad. Um, the transplant surgery, if you hadn't heard, was more than a success. I just wanted to take some time to publicly tell you about those things and to thank God for, you're just going to see his hand of providence in everything that went on there. First of all, it's a very young kidney, and we are saddened about the reason why we have it, but thankful for it. And that means that it will definitely uh, be well for him for the rest of his life, probably. Um, the kidney was, they keep referring to it as beautiful. The kidney is beautiful. We've heard that from the surgeons, from the nurses, from anybody who's seen the pictures of it, saw the procedure of it. They're just overwhelmed with the condition of this kidney. So we're thanking God for that. Um, the surgery was very easy, which is surprising considering my dad's age, comparatively to other surgeries that they've had. Um, they were able to get in there and, and take care of the actual transplant within about, I believe, two hours. And I'm not the best person for details, so you'll, uh, my sisters will definitely correct anything that I have wrong there on that. But the biggest issue was removing the, um, the tube that he had, the, the catheter for his um, um, dialysis. And they lost a part that came off as they were in there. So you can imagine they were in 
looking for that part and that took an extra hour and a couple more incisions because they could not get it out it was frustrating to the surgeon to have the transplant part go so well and the minor procedure that can be done very quickly go so awful but he uh, he assured us he assured Jess I believe the words were somehow once I finally got it I personally threw it in the trash can and heard it clink so that's what made the surgery a little bit longer than normal was this extra procedure that they had to do. He went into recovery, and everything has been excellent. His wounds are healing. They're surprised at how quickly they're doing that. Uh, the amount of uh, urine he's producing is astounding. The kidney started working immediately as soon as it was attached, which, again, is not very common. Usually the kidney has to be kind of like acclimated to its new surroundings and to get going. And sometimes they have procedures they have to do to jumpstart the kidney. None of that was necessary. As soon as it was attached, and it was running. And the surgeon was very, very surprised to see that. Can you see the hand of God and all these things? Um, he came through the anesthesia just fine. Um, he got up and walked around, got in a chair. He took, when I was with him, he took uh, three walks, and he sat upright in his chair four times, and that was beyond what they expected him to do. And as I was walking with him, I noticed that every single walk we took, he was faster and stronger. It's amazing how quickly healing comes when, when the, the body's functioning properly. Um, so that is all good in our time down there. He comes home today. Uh, and they had told us, they said, oh, three to five days is for somebody like in their 20s who gets a transplant. Your dad's in his 70s. We're talking about a week to two. And they're trying to prepare him for a long stay. Well, you know, Pastor, you're going to probably be here longer and, and those kind of things, you know, let your body heal. And every, every milestone that he's approached to see if he can be discharged, he's, he's been ready at his age. Only God can do that. So he's being prepared today to be sent home, which brings us up to our next challenge, which is at least, well, the, the close challenge is we are now in 24-7 care for him. It has to be us, um, and for the next six to eight weeks, and he's not allowed to leave very much, if at all, period, uh, for that time, um, and visitors will have to be rare at that point. He is, his, his immunosystem is very compromised, where beforehand it was because of the dialysis and the kidney failure. Now it's because he has a new organ and he's on medication uh, that weakens him on purpose so that his body does not reject the kidney, and that will be the remainder of his life. And so things need to change when, when talking with and being around pastor. If you're sick, a phone call will be just fine. Um, if you are sick and you're at church and you think you have a cold, um, it, it might be one of those things to, again, I'm going to use the word, but not in the context that we've been hearing it in, social distance from pastor. Um, he will need a, uh, to wear a mask if he's around people who are sick, anything to protect them, because any small infection, even a cut on your finger or a cold, could be devastating to him because of the fact that his immunosystem is so purposefully compromised so that he keeps this kidney. Um, we're asking as a family that if it's possible that someone from the church could organize and uh, have some sign-ups for meal delivery for him for the next couple weeks, starting, I believe, mm, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow night. Just dinners will help uh, the caregiver because, again, we're 24-7. We can't leave. We can have things brought to us, though. Um, and uh, if we can have that organized by someone within the church, we would be very thankful. And we are obviously very thankful as a family for the years of prayer that went into what transpired this last week. 
we weren't sure when Henry Ford rejected um, his transplant that, that we were thinking, okay, Lord, is that the door that says he's going to be on dialysis forever and this becomes our new lifestyle for the rest of our time with dad or, or whatever have you? And Ann Arbor opened up and within just a little bit of time uh, and, th and the donation of the organ from a loved one, um, he's healthy, he's going to be, or at least hoping that's going to be the case. So we covet your prayers again. And thank you for that. Uh, Dan and Sheila, go ahead, Dan. Well, um, yes, and we don't have our fingers on all of that yet. <laughs> I know that fatty foods are not good for him um, because of some of the medications that he's on. They, the, they just get counteracted with fat foods. So, well, and they said a little bit, <laughs> a little bit, especially not in the morning, though. No breakfast, sausage, bacon, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's hard. Okay, and Sheila, did you have a question too, Sheila, about that? I was just going to ask about the diet too, but okay. also um, could we um, like freeze some meals and bring a bunch from the freezer? Yep, like and we'll that. be coordinating all his meals for the next six to eight weeks. Okay. <laughs> so we'll, we can put them in order, put numbers on them, and help him get, get things taken care of. Terry, go ahead. You're probably going to have to be relatively careful around him for the rest of his life. But maybe not as, I don't know, but maybe not as, as much as we currently have to be. I mean, he'll, have, he'll be able to have visitors. So I, the answer to that, I guess, is yes. And he'll be able to go out and all those things. They did warn us and all the places that we've been that this next year, this next 12 months, are going to be very difficult for him as his body transitions to all this. He's going to be sick, sicker than he's ever been. But at the same time, recovering, it's an interesting thing to have happen. And they said around that 12-month mark, there's like a little light switch that goes on. And then you start seeing they feel better and they're out, they want to go do stuff and that kind of stuff. But we have a long road ahead of us yet. It's not over. It's just beginning. Uh, one year from now, when school gets out for 2022, we might be looking at a, a different pastor at that point in terms of being healthy and such. But this next year, and, and I'm, I'm warning us as a church that we have to keep our expectations about what you expect from him being able to come back and preach and those kind of things to keep it in realistic terms. He won't be here for several months right now. Is he going to watch? By all means, he's going to watch and participate when he can. But physically seeing him for the next two months might be non, not, not possible. What's that? FaceTime. FaceTime him. You can FaceTime him, and he'd be happy to, to see you and talk to you that way. He does. We have to help him push the button sometimes. He gets confused about Sometimes you might get audio when you wanted to video, but we'll be right there with him, so we can help, and we'll see how those go. Any other questions I can feel before we begin our worship service today? Yeah, Dale. It would be appreciated. They're, they're, yeah, they're going to at least be one person there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be appreciated, yes. Yeah, thank you. Anything else? All right, again, a heart, depth felt thank you from the Luke family. We have such a great God. We're looking at all the providence. I, I will share one thing with you before I step over to the piano. His closest companion at that house was his cat. And the cat can't be around after a transplant. The cat died a couple, just a week ago. It's God preparing him for this transplant. Just these small things that we just let pass by. It's God working because he loves us.
Amen. Our scripture for meditation this morning, then, is in the Psalm 119. Psalm 119, read 121 through 136, page Let's stand and open our service with prayer. <coughs> Dale, would you lead us this morning? Our gracious God, how glad we are to come out and meet with your people. Thank you, dear Lord, for uh, lining up all those miracles that the pastors Take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 202, 202 in the brown.
thought, I'm sorry, George, he was faster than you today. <laughs> 430 in the brown? Yes. 430 in the brown. And do you have a reason for this hymn this morning? This morning is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 9, 15, 16 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 13. One through nine, page 1516, verse one. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. 
Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he went out to sow his seed, as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell along among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. Then um, skip over to start at verse 18. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, snatches it away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it out, making it unfruitful, because the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Ask the Lord would bless his, the reading of his word. You take your brown handle again and turn to number 
should let you know that uh, for the next two Sundays, Andrea and I and the whole clan are going to be gone. We've been planning a vacation, and we think we can swing it. Uh, the three J's are, are trying our very best to make sure we preserve some time for each family to go get some time off, and uh, we're going to try to work that out. So, uh, In my absence and pastor's absence, next week, uh, Mark Loker is coming. We haven't heard from Mark in quite a while. Um, he's agreed to come in and speak for the next two weeks, and then we're going to play week by week and understand that things we're going to see many different speakers probably, uh, and just if, I just ask that you be patient with us as we try our best to keep things moving here at Thornville. Very thankful for um, Mark's willingness at a drop of a hat to come and say, by all means, by all means, we'll come. So um, Today's message uh, is called, if you've looked in the bulletin already, being ineffective for Christ. It's something that you usually hear the positive of that. We need to be effective or be doing something. But brethren, our sin nature causes us to be perpetually pulls us down and we need to be on guard for doing what's right and pushing us forward what a time it's going to be in glory when that part is gone and we no longer have to deal with that but while we're on earth we have to be on guard with being ineffective getting caught if you will in a rut so uh let's have a word of prayer uh, as we look at this subject this morning Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to meet this morning in our church building, knowing full well that today, Lord, there are people who are called Christians and are just as much Christians as we are, who maybe don't have a building, they meet in a home, or they're not able to meet publicly, and they're meeting in hiding, and yet, Lord, we find them being obedient to do so. Thank you for our country still allows us to do this, Lord. There's no fear of our government shutting us down for this. I pray, Lord, that we have not, as Christians, taken that for granted, but understanding that that gift is from you. We pray that you would be with us this morning. Open our hearts and our minds to your word. Allow us to focus. This world has plenty of distractions. And we ask, Lord, that you would be with those who are unable to be with us today, or even those who are unwilling. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever spent time with a brother or sister in the faith who seemed to have an incredible grasp of the knowledge of God but didn't live like they had any idea of who God was? Or have you spent time with a good Christian friend who is struggling with a particular sin but couldn't seem to let it go? And they may know all the texts of Scripture that instruct them what to do, the dangers of continuing in that said sin, and the responsibility of a child of God to expunge sin from their lives, and yet they continue. And worse yet, have you encountered people who knew the before-mentioned things and not been aware that they were involved with that sin? Or how about the person in God's family who has been saved from a life of wretched, self-destructing sin, and yet would not witness to others lost in sin, of the tremendous grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace that they had experienced firsthand. It's possible. And I have met people like this, and to my shame, I have been like this myself. In Christian circles today, there seems to exist a dichotomy between what is believed with the heart and what is done with the body. 
There is a tremendous deficit between the knowledge of God that we have attained from the Spirit's teaching and the functionality and the import of that knowledge upon our day-to-day lives. We know so much more than what we put into practice. And such a deficit brings up some pretty good questions. Why are we given knowledge about God? And for what purpose is this knowledge to be used? For whose benefit has this knowledge been given? We may also ask, why doesn't this knowledge affect the way we live? Why haven't we done all that we know? If there is a deficit between what we know and how we live, we must then ask even more important questions. Why are we living this way? Is it acceptable to God for us to live this way? And we can answer that last question first, because if we are indeed doing less than we know we ought to do, then we are living in a state of sin. Living in a state of constant sin is entirely unacceptable to God for his children. The first question concerning why we live this way is much more difficult to answer, but we will attempt to learn the truth about ourselves today. I would like us to look at the topic of being ineffective for Christ. And whether our knowledge of God is rudimentary or pervasive, whether we are a babe in Christ or a sage saint, whether we are pastor or parishioner, there is no difference in our responsibility. We are commanded by God to use what we have been given for the edification of his kingdom. And God has given us everything that we are and have. So everything that we are and have entrusted to us and under our supervision as his stewards, must be used in his service. When we do not use all that we are and have for the building up of the kingdom of God, we are being, at least at some level, ineffectual. Being ineffectual is the last thing we want to be in service to Christ. Well, so how are we ineffective for Christ Well, one of the first and most important ways we are ineffective is that we do not spread the gospel. And by not doing so, we do not increase the kingdom of Christ. And to illustrate this point, I would like us to consider the parable of the sower. And this parable is probably a very familiar text to all of us. And I wholeheartedly believe that some of the more familiar texts of the Bible sometimes tend to lose meaning, not because the word of God is impotent, but rather because we, the listeners, believe we have learned all that we can from a particular text, and we therefore turn a deaf ear to the whisperings of the Spirit. I would like us to look at Matthew 13 a little differently today. And I would like us to focus on the third soil outlined in Jesus' parable. In verse 22 of Matthew 13, it reads, The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. The first thorn that Jesus describes is the thorn of the worries of this life. And notice first and foremost that this thorn is a very, very large thorn. The worries of this life are many. and We worry about everything we possibly can. What's going to happen at work today? Will I get fired or laid off? How am I going to support my family? What if I get sick? What if I die? What if my spouse or children get sick or die? 
And the worries go on and on and on. And Jesus had quite a bit to say about worrying in Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, the crux of the matter is this. When we worry, we do not trust God to do what is right. And to not trust God to do what is right implies that he is capable of doing something wrong. To imply that God can do something wrong means that, in essence, you are saying God is not perfect, or you are saying that God is not good. Either way, you imply that God is not God. The pagans worry, and for good reason. They do not know God. They do not know what God has said concerning his own actions. But we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. As children of the almighty king of the universe, we are not to doubt his actions or their intent. True enough, Events occur that we interpret as unfavorable, unpleasant, bad, or even evil. But when these events happen, we must look at them through the eyes of God. If we believe the scriptures, then we must believe that all things, all things, work for our benefit because God wills it so. And we must understand that even in catastrophic events that leave us maimed physically or emotionally, we must trust that God has done what is right, period. And by extension, what is right for us and our behalf. We must say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Job 13, verse 15. When we as Christians come to the thorn of worry, we must remember the following things. Number one, God has commanded us not to worry, for he has promised to provide for us. Number two, God has promised that all that he does is for our good and not to harm us. And thirdly, when hard times come, in the midst of disaster, we are to continue to hope in God. How are we, as the people of God, 
handling this thorn of worry. I dare say most of us, if not all of us, still worry a great deal. And have we looked at passages this morning that were unfamiliar to us? Well, if so, then we need to repent in the light of the revealed word of God. But if these passages were familiar to us, then we have been knowingly involved in sin, and we need to repent all the more. Now, how does all this relate to the parable of the sower and being ineffective for Christ? Well, I believe one way in which worry manifests itself is in the presentation of the gospel. In the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about the types of soil and what each plant yielded as a result of being planted. Therefore, this parable is interested in the spreading of the gospel. And how do we know this? Well, if we look at verse 23 of Matthew 13, But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. You see, the reason the seeds are sown in the first place is so that a plant may grow to maturity and produce more of its kind. I believe we often focus on the kinds of people the different types of soil produce rather than on the purpose as to why the seed was thrown in the first place. Jesus expects a crop of 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown. And that is a tall order. And we will not produce this kind of crop if we are bogged down with worry. Turn with me to Matthew 25, if you're still with your Bibles there. And we'll start reading at verse 14. Matthew 25, verse 14. Verse 14 reads, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And so I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seed. 
Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one that has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And now verse 30. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Often this passage is used to help us gain a perspective on utilizing our spiritual gifts in the service of the Lord. But tell me, what greater spiritual gift have you received apart from your salvation? Was not the gospel entrusted to you on the day you first believed? Well then, what have you done with this gift or talent from God? Have you put this talent to work as the two faithful servants in the parable did, returning twice of what was given them, or have you buried it deep within yourself where no one can find it? Let's analyze for a moment what could be bogging us down with worry in regards to the presentation of the gospel. A person may worry about what people think about them being a Christian. And up until now, this person has remained silent with regard to spiritual things for fear that others may look down upon them or disregard them. These people are ashamed of their adopted family. They are ashamed of their brother and Savior, Jesus Christ, who bled on a wooden Roman cross to procure their salvation. Jesus is quite specific about people being ashamed of him. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Mark 8.38 Maybe it's the message of the gospel that makes people worry. Well, that's relatively easy to fix. We'll just change the gospel so it's less offensive for people to hear. That way, we won't have to worry about rejection or harsh responses from people when we witness. People who worry about the offensiveness of the gospel are really ashamed of the gospel. And Romans 1.16 reads, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Brethren, don't you see that for us to worry and to be ashamed of the way in which God has ordained for his kingdom to be advanced is really the mark of cowardice. A cowardly soldier is ineffective and worthless. If we are to be effective for Christ, if we, then we must not worry about what others may think of us. We must not worry about how people will react to the gospel. We must fearlessly present the gospel whenever we are able to do so, knowing full well that whatever the outcome of that confrontation, that number one, it has already been predetermined by God. And number two, it is part of his master plan to bring sinners unto himself. And number three, in being part of all things, it is for the good of those who love God. In other words, it's for your good. And you may say, well, what if they laugh at me? Well, Jesus was laughed at and mocked with greater severity, I dare say, than anything that we call 
persecution. What if they don't respond? Keep trying. But understand, it's not your responsibility to change their hearts. That's God's responsibility. The proclamation of the gospel has two distinct outcomes. Either the gospel softens the heart of an unbeliever, or it hardens it. Either way, you are doing the work of God, and his will is being accomplished. Secondly, we are warned in the parable of the sower against the chasing after money. The deceitfulness of wealth has caused many an American Christian to be unfruitful. The underlying idea behind this admonition is the devaluation of the things of God in comparison to temporal wealth. And what is wealth? Is it not another gift of God to be used in his service? Sadly, this is not how many Christians see money. Money is looked upon as the reward for doing their job well. They see the pay they receive from their job as what is due to them. We need to see, however, that money, as with everything else that we are managing for God, is a gift that can be taken away. We do not earn the money we receive. God gives it to us. It would be well of us to think of the money we receive as a loan from God and that upon God's collection, we will need to be returning it with some interest. Unfortunately, most people look upon the amount of money they receive from God as not enough and therefore pursue the expanse of their bank accounts. And this pursuit is very time-consuming and takes away from the time they should be doing the work of God. I have watched a few people who claimed Christianity work every possible hour they could of overtime in order to maximize their earning power. They worked well into the evenings that should have been family time, hardly ever seeing their wife and children. And because of working late, they often miss the midweek prayer service, denying the very lifeblood of the church. They worked every Saturday they could, more family time gone. And when the opportunity provided, they worked Sundays as well. And while they worked these consuming hours, the children were raised solely by their mothers. Well, they had a father, he just wasn't ever around. The church missed the benefit of a faithful contributing member, and oh, he tithed. But when he had the opportunity to actually attend, his pew was just warmed at best. Never giving of what really mattered, time with his brothers and sisters in Christ and investment in the service of others. All while these worshipers of money justified their actions in one of two ways. Either they didn't prioritize their time away from work, or they thought that what they were doing would only be temporary. But it wasn't. At the end of it all, what did they have? Money, for sure. A family? Maybe. A spiritual life? Not hardly. Secondly, people who are deceived by the allurement of wealth never have enough. They never achieve the point where they can say, I am satisfied. Instead, they continue to find new ways to increase their revenues. Sometimes they are caught up in keeping with, up with other people, and the cycle never stops. They just have to one-up the other person by buying the next better thing. Other times, they hoard what they have in miserly ways. Hey, I worked hard for this money, and no one is going to take it from me. Ultimately, 
God condemns the person who spends all of his resources trying to be rich as a fool or one who is morally bankrupt. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Luke twelve sixteen through 21. Lastly, the chasing after wealth proves there are wrong motives in the heart. We have already seen that everything we are and have comes from God, and that money is included in everything. Therefore, the money, in whatever amount we receive, comes directly from God and not our actions. We as Christians who believe in a completely sovereign God must not only believe this, we must live like this. We live in the most blessed nation on this earth. We have so much. We throw away much of what we have away. We need to learn to be content with what we have, knowing that God will never let us go without our needs. Surely our comforts may be at risk, as God has never promised to supply those. But dare we weigh the comforts we now experience against trusting God to provide? This is what makes us unfruitful. This is what makes us ineffective. We are unwilling to let go of our comforts in order to do what God has asked us, nay, rightly commanded us to do. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all go out and sell everything we have and live in a hut. But if we did, as long as we were about the work of advancing the kingdom of God, our every need would be provided for. Do we believe that? If we do, we need to live like it. Now, I want to take a break for just a moment to say that not every wealthy Christian is ineffective for Christ. Not in the least. The gift of wealth and resources should be looked upon as a spiritual blessing and as such used for the advancement of God's kingdom. And there are Christian people who view wealth in this attitude. They spend of their blessings liberally. They give to the needs of the, in, in and out of the church. And by doing so, they invest in the kingdom of God and earn a return of interest, not in money, but in people for the Lord. Wealth is deceitful. The pursuit of it takes our energies away from the Lord's work and profits us nothing eternally in the end. When, in the pursuit of riches, we are ineffective for Christ. Although we are going to look at the warnings to churches in Revelation more closely in just a few moments, the problems of the church of Laodicea fit into this section of the message. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14 and following, it reads... To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, 
I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those who I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here we see the extent of deceitfulness of wealth. This church was wealthy, and yes, God provided their wealth. But despite their great financial holdings, they were blind to see that they were spiritually bankrupt. They had taken comfort in the temporal things of the world and had ceased in their activities for Christ. The call of Christ to this church is the same to those of us who have personally fallen into this trap. Repent and reprioritize your life. Invest in Christ Deposit all that you have, your time, energy, and passion in Jesus Christ. Then and only then will we indeed be rich. Let us look at one more example of our responsibility to share the gospel and be effective for Christ. Ezekiel was one of the prophets God employed to preach his word in repentance. In Ezekiel three seventeen and 18, we read what God told Ezekiel concerning his responsibility. Son of man... I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin. And I will hold you accountable for his blood. In a very similar manner, we have been given the same mandate. We have received the word of God, and we are charged with speaking what God has revealed to us to others in order to warn them of the coming judgment. According to this passage, God held Ezekiel accountable for any time he should have spoke but didn't. And have we been commissioned like Ezekiel? Surely we have. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. I dare say our commission is much more expansive than what Ezekiel was commissioned to do. Well, how are we doing? Do we view the world as our commission? Maybe we have focused too keenly on the world as a whole, concerning ourselves with global mission projects, all the while neglecting the lost souls who live right next to us. Brethren, we have a responsibility, a God-given responsibility to speak concerning the hope that lies within us to all people, whether they listen intently or cover their ears. And to who are we to speak? We are to speak to everyone we can. What greater subject in earth can we find to talk about than 
where a person is going to spend eternity. Do we believe in a sovereign God? Certainly we do. Then the people who we live next to, totally unregenerate as they may be, have been placed there for a purpose. Subsequently, every seemingly impromptu meeting we have with people we bump into on the street, at work, in the supermarket, etc., has been divinely planned by God. And what is God's plan? God is concerned with the building of his kingdom. His plan is to bring people into his kingdom as adopted children from every tribe and nation. And he has planned to use us as the means to accomplish this great task. Therefore, we must view these seemingly random encounters as appointments that God has made for us to do what he desires of us. Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Brethren, we have been sent to preach the good news. All of us have been, not just the pastor, the elders, and the deacons. Let us be about the business of the Lord. Secondly, I would have us look at the warnings of the churches in the book of Revelation. The reasons for these churches being admonished are still alive today. In Revelation 2, verse 4 and 5, the church of Ephesus was chastised for forsaking their first love. Verse 4 reads, You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Well, what was it about you that was so different immediately following your conversion? If we asked your closest friends and family, what would they say about your behavior? Most likely, if it was genuine, they would comment on the radical change in your nature. What were we so concerned about immediately following our conversion? I believe we were dedicated to pleasing Jesus Christ, and we wanted to tell the whole world about the liberation found in the gospel. Jesus is our first love. No one ever cared for us while we were in sin except Jesus. No one ever willingly gave up his or her own life for our sin except Jesus. No one continues to love us and will forever love us except Jesus. When we first came to know Christ, we were at the pinnacle of euphoria. We couldn't wait to be in church. We prayed and read God's word every day. And we shared what Jesus had done for us to every living soul we encountered. Well, what happened to us? We have fallen. Either in the reality of living the very difficult Christian life or imbibing the negativity of the bitter veteran Christians, we have fallen indeed. Jesus may very well be our first love, but we have forgotten him and the tremendous importance he has in our lives. 
Jesus' call to the people in Ephesus is the same to those of us who have forgotten what he looks like. Remember, repent, and do the things we did when we first believed. Verse 10, I'll give you the reference in a moment. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Psalm 51, 10 through 13. Can we be as fired up about being a member in the family of God today as we were when we first believed? Yes, we can. But to do so requires the renewing of the spirit, a renewing of the mind, and the restoration of the joy of God's salvation, and only Christ can provide this. Therefore, we must ask him to supply. And know this, what we ask in faith, according to his will, he delights to answer. I'll say this as well, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. God does not just zap us with these things. They come by reading his word and spending quality time in prayer. Are we as a church willing? What about the chapter uh, in, uh, sorry, the church in Sardis? Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 reads, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. You know, at first glance, these words seem to be rather similar to what Jesus had to say to the church in Ephesus. But it is the phrase, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead, that changes the message. This church sounds much like many of the mega churches of our day. Everybody is busy with special programs, Christian schools, Bible studies, youth groups, music rehearsals, and anything else you can think of. To the person looking in, this church seems alive. But there is something missing. Because this something is missing, the whole effort is in vain. Despite their dedication to what they are doing, they are ineffectual for Christ. This something that they are missing is Christ. Although they may give lip service and credence to the fact that they are doing all for the advancement of Christ's kingdom, they don't know him. The messages they preach are anything but the gospel. Church is more about going to feel good about oneself in the process of worship. If anyone learns anything about Christ, it's an accident. Doctrine is for the sourpuss theologians and not for the lay people of the church. There's no question about if they have truly met with God in the worship service because he is not there. He is not there because he is not revered and viewed as holy. He is not there because the people within prioritize themselves over him. He is not there because he is not worshipped. Sadly, the same thing can be true of a person as well as a megachurch. 
We can be busy for Christ, doing this and that, all for the sake of Christ, and while not knowing who he is at all. It's easy to see if you are one of these people. All you have to do is honestly examine your motives for service. Why do you come to church? Do you come because you have to? Or because you somehow feel obliged to come? Why do you serve in the church? Do you serve so that you can get your community service hours in? Or because somebody has to do it? Or because it makes you feel good? If these are your only reasons, then there's something wrong. More questions. What have you read recently in the Word of God that has made an impact on your life? How's your prayer life? Do you speak to God every day? Imagine if you were living at home with somebody and never spoke to them. Would they think that you loved them? And what about your desire to worship God simply for who and what he is? Do you even have such a desire? The remedy for both the megachurch and the single Christian who have lost their way is this. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Go back to the truth. Remember your purpose for Christian living. Repent of the years lost to misguided ambition and rededicate yourself to serving Jesus Christ. Well, what can be said in summary this morning? Well, for the Christian, there is much to do. The churches of America are either on fire for nobody or completely apathetic. What a sad state of affairs for a country that was founded on godly principles. But all is not lost. The God of life who breathed the breath of life into our dead souls and caused us to come alive, can do so with a dying and dead nation. But if we take the stance that we will wait and see if God will indeed revive our country, we may be sure that revival will never come. The revival of a nation begins with the revival of its churches. And the revival of a church begins with the revival of its members. And the revival of the members of the church begins with repentance and prayer. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Second Chronicles 7.14 This is a promise of God, and we may take hold of it. Don't be discouraged by what is happening to our nation. Let us fall before the throne of God, knowing that we have an audience with the great I Am, and ask for forgiveness for our lukewarm lives. Let us ask to be in his presence and for him to make us holy. Let us ask for the spirit to be rekindled in our lives so that we may be effective in the battle to win men's souls for Jesus Christ. Let us ask to be bold for the sake of Christ, and having done so, be alert for every opportunity to examine whether he has answered our prayer. We cannot just pray for these things and expect them to miraculously just happen. We must step out in faith. 
we must act. You cannot pray to be bold in your witness for Christ and then not open your mouth to speak. You cannot ask for the Spirit to be rekindled in your life while expecting to live life as you always have. You cannot ask to be holy and to be in the Lord's presence while actively holding on to your sin. And you cannot ask for forgiveness of your sin if you have no intention of putting the sinful nature to death. Brethren, faith without works is dead. We know so much theology, especially those of us who have been blessed to be under the excellent instruction of godly pastors. Brethren, I have to tell you, being under good preaching is a gift from God that must be put to work like the rest of his gifts. We know so much, but we do so little. If we would only do what we know, imagine how effective for Christ we would be. Let us renew our commitment to take up our cross daily and follow our Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you who don't know Christ this day, you have no desire to be effective for Christ. You have sat here this morning and listened to me drone on and on about something that you regard as complete foolishness. Maybe you are religious. Maybe you think that God is a good thing to talk about once in a while, but only on Sundays and religious holidays, if that. You may believe that Jesus Christ was a good man and a good moral teacher, but that's about it. You certainly don't believe that you need him as your Savior. After all, you've lived a pretty good life. You're not a murderer or a rapist or whatever. And if there is indeed a God, he will allow you entrance into his kingdom because you're not as bad as a whole lot of other people on this planet. But let me ask you a question. Where did you come up with those concepts of God? And for that matter, where did you come up with that concept of yourself? Did you get them from the Bible? God's infallible word? Certainly not. You've come to these conclusions about God and yourself on your own. And you have made yourself the authority concerning the nature and character of someone else, namely God, and your relationship to him. If God indeed exists, it would be ludicrous to assume that he is going to function by the misconceptions of his character by one of his creations. The Bible is the inerrant word of the living God. If you want to speak about God and your relationship to him, listen first to what he has to say about himself and you. First, God is holy. Revelation 15, verse 4. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. Holy means separated. God is separated from sin. The earth and everything in it is cursed by sin. God cannot abide sin because sin is active rebellion against God. Secondly, the Bible says that you are a sinner. That is, you sin every day and are in a state of active rebellion right now against God. And as a sinner, you are separated from God. Romans 3.12 reads, All have turned away. They have together become worthless. 
There is no one who does good, not even one. Or later in the chapter, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Third, God is just and always punishes sin. Subsequently, he will punish your sin. Revelation 15, verse 3. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. He, that is God, will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Fourth, either you will personally pay the price for your own sin with your own never-ending torment in hell, or the penalty for your sin will be paid for by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Either way, your sin will be punished and dealt with. The plan of salvation is this. God sent his only son to redeem a wicked and rebellious people for himself. There was no coercion or special thing about those he chose to save other than it pleased him to save those he willed to save. Jesus lived the life that none of us can live, a holy and perfect life. He never sinned. He couldn't because he was God. Yet God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 What that means is that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for the sins of his people by his work on the cross when he gave up his perfect life and spilled his perfect blood God the Father accepted this payment for all of the sins of his chosen people, past, present, and future. Because Jesus followed the will of the Father, obedient unto death, the Father raised him from the dead and seated him in the highest station in heaven. And that means that you don't have to die for your sin. The word of God says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Romans 10, 9 through 11. Today, if you hear his voice calling to you to come to him, don't put it off. For God has also said in Genesis 6, verse 3, my spirit will not contend with man forever. Right now, if you hear his voice calling you, repent of your sins and ask Jesus Christ to come into your life and to save you. And he will. For although the time that God has assigned for the gospel to go out is shorter now than it has ever been, he has also said in John 6, 35 through 40, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, 
and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, thank you for being such a great God for providing for us your rebellious creation such a plan of salvation and redemption why you would want to bring us those who have raised our fists in anger and rebellion to you why you should want to bring us into your family Lord if the the tables were reversed and we were in that position I would dare say we would bring about judgment on all But thank you for your mercy and your grace and for the complete perfection of your son, Jesus Christ, and that in his sacrifice, you can and do redeem a people to yourself. Lord, this should cause every Christian in this room to be forever thankful and to lift our voices in praise of you. Forgive us when we have been silent. Grant repentance to us, Lord, and may your kingdom come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Closing hymn, 382. 382 in the brown. I'm going to ask Andrew to come up and lead us through that. Please stand with me once you find the hymn, 382.